This is the Policy Options Podcast. I'm Julie Bijan. Last week, Canada's premiers met in Saskatoon for the Council of the Federation, a biannual meeting to discuss issues and share concerns. But the day before, another meeting took place among the premiers of Ontario, Alberta, Saskatchewan, the Northwest Territories, and New Brunswick. Top of mind among that Conservative coalition was carbon pricing. With three of the provinces taking Ottawa to court, and three more signing on to be interveners in the Saskatchewan case, it's clear that what in 2016 looked like a near-unanimous agreement on carbon pricing has now fallen apart. Here to give us the rundown is Catherine Harrison, a professor of political science at the University of British Columbia, specializing in Canadian and U.S. climate policy. The featured talk she organized for the 2019 Congress of the Social Sciences and Humanities inspired our new series on the evolution of carbon pricing in the provinces. She's also written two pieces for the series, linked in the episode description. Here's our conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, first of all. It's my pleasure. Just to sort of get the lay of the land here, what are some of the ways a government can implement carbon pricing? And what are some of the ways that governments over time in Canada have approached carbon pricing? There's a number of different approaches governments can take to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The one that Canada has relied on traditionally in environmental policy is regulation where individual polluters, whether it's a factory or a manufacturer of automobiles, get a single standard that they have to meet or or pay fines. The alternative is a couple of different forms of carbon pricing, as it's called. One of them is a carbon tax. The other is cap and trade, where by taking advantage of markets, governments can achieve the same level of emissions reductions at a lower cost to polluters and to the consumers that buy products that are made by some of the industrial scale polluters. So the one approach is to simply put a tax on fossil fuels proportionate to how much carbon dioxide they release when they're burned. And that's obviously the carbon tax. And the other approach is closer to regulation. And that's where whether by selling permits or initially giving them out free, there's a limited number of permits and then permit holders, polluters are allowed to buy and sell them. And those, you know, those permits will move around to achieve emissions reductions at a lower cost. Traditionally, Canadian governments have relied either on regulation or kind of throwing money at the problem, offering subsidies, whether to individuals or industry. Not only did Canada continue to rely on more traditional and more costly regulation for a long time, but the very idea of a carbon tax was kind of a dirty word in Canadian politics. And in fact, the only time it would come up in the 1990s and um, probably till about 2005 was when opposition members of parliament would challenge the government and ask, you know, isn't this, isn't there really a secret plan to have a carbon tax, which of course the government would deny. And they've only recently begun to adopt both approaches to carbon pricing, depending on the province in question. So what were some of those important moves in terms of adopting carbon pricing among the Canadian provinces before we get to 2016? Things really changed starting in the middle of the 2000s decade when four Canadian provinces adopted their own carbon pricing strategies. 
starting from the West Coast, British Columbia adopted a revenue neutral carbon tax. Next door, Alberta initially adopted a hybrid form of carbon pricing only for large industrial sources, essentially for um, oil sands facilities. Though the previous government, the NDP government under Rachel Notley, extended that carbon pricing regime in Alberta through a carbon tax on small sources as well. Quebec joined an emissions trading scheme, a cap and trade scheme with California a few years ago. And Ontario also briefly joined that emissions trading scheme with Quebec and California before the Ford government withdrew from emissions trading last summer. So there were four provinces with the largest population had adopted their own carbon pricing schemes, and that really changed the landscape for the federal government. When the Liberals were running for election in 2015, what Justin Trudeau promised is that if elected, a Liberal government would establish a consistent national carbon price, but leave it up to individual provinces to decide which approach they wanted to take, whether a carbon tax or an emissions trading scheme. And it was really the opportunity to build on that provincial leadership that set the stage for negotiation of the pan-Canadian framework. The pan-Canadian framework on clean growth and climate change was introduced in 2016 with carbon pricing, as you said, as a key component How did that change the political and the policy landscape among the provinces? In the first step, the prime minister had to convince the provinces that are already on board to accept the higher price or the, in some cases, higher level of ambition that the Trudeau government was proposing. And he also had to convince the other provinces that did not yet have carbon pricing that they would agree to this. And critical to that was in the fall of 2016, Justin Trudeau made a speech in the House of Commons where he announced that if provincial governments didn't adopt carbon pricing plans that met the federal government's benchmark, as it's now called, the criteria that the federal government had established, then the federal government would unilaterally establish a carbon price in those provinces. And I think that threat of federal unilateralism was critical to getting eventually all provinces and territories other than Saskatchewan on board. So I think we've really got provinces in three groups. Uh, The first is the leaders, or at least the initial leaders, which included BC, Alberta, Ontario, and Quebec. And even there, there were some hiccups. British Columbia was concerned under Premier Christy Clark at the time that the two options that the federal government was putting forward for the provinces weren't exactly comparable. And that might mean that some provinces would end up with a lower carbon price than others, and that that would disadvantage a province like British Columbia. But BC did eventually sign on. A trickier case was Alberta, where there was already a carbon tax in place, but the Alberta government under Rachel Notley was reluctant to commit to a higher carbon tax and only did so conditional on federal approval of the Trans Mountain Expansion Project, the new pipeline. In fact, Mr. Trudeau did approve that pipeline just a few days before Alberta and other provinces signed on to the pan-Canadian framework. So that's sort of the leader group. Then there's a second group, the laggards, the provinces that hadn't adopted uh, carbon pricing yet, 
And there were some practical challenges, figuring out which approach to take, which emissions would be covered, some negotiations clearly between the provincial governments and the federal government. But most of those, most of those got on board in one form or another. And then the last group is the resistance. The provinces, initially just Saskatchewan, but others that joined them, either because uh, they changed their mind, like Ontario and Alberta, or because the federal government rejected the provincial carbon pricing plan. And that was the case for Manitoba and New Brunswick. So we now have five provincial governments with half of the population of Canada that have withdrawn from the agreement on carbon pricing with the federal government. And in those provinces, the federal government has imposed a revenue neutral carbon tax and dividend plan. And so now we also have this situation where these oppositional provinces are taking Ottawa to court to find out whether the backstop that's been imposed is constitutional. How did the intergovernmental breakdown between Ottawa and the provinces, how did that happen? Well, I think Saskatchewan was, was not on board all along. And I think one of, the, one of the important background features is that the provinces in Canada vary tremendously in terms of the greenhouse gas intensity of their economy. In fact, if one compares Saskatchewan, which has the most greenhouse gas emissions per person per year of all the provinces with Alberta close behind, to Quebec, which has the lowest per capita greenhouse gas emissions. The difference between those provinces is greater than the differences between any countries on the planet. What that means is is that the provinces, particularly those with the highest emissions intensity, Alberta and Saskatchewan, are quite nervous about the implications of acting on climate change for their economies that there will be a greater change needed, that current jobs will need to transition. And so that means that ever since the late 1980s, when we first started talking about addressing climate change in Canada, Alberta and Saskatchewan have been a tough sell. And that, that remains the case. They have, however, been joined by conservative governments in Ontario Manitoba, New Brunswick, that for their own reasons, even though in those provinces there are much lower emissions per person, are opposed to the Trudeau government's unilateral plan. So you touched on this, but there's a large group of economists who say a carbon price is the way to go. It's the best bang for your buck in terms of fighting greenhouse gas emissions. But it's, it's been quite a hard sell to citizens, and not just in provinces like Alberta and Saskatchewan, but, you know, especially in those provinces. Why is it so easy for politicians to make people think that carbon pricing is a bad policy when we've got a huge amount of economists who are in support of it? Well, you know, the average person isn't an economist, and uh, they, they don't really rally and run to the barricades to defend carbon pricing. And I think that carbon pricing, especially carbon taxes, but also emissions trading, it's a hard sell for a bunch of reasons. Most people don't understand how it works. And that, again, that's true, whether it's a carbon tax or an emissions trading scheme. And that has a couple implications. One of them is they're skeptical that it's actually going to do anything, especially if governments give the money back. They have this idea that the reason 
a carbon tax works is because the government collects the money and spends it on green things, when in fact, the real way that carbon taxes work is by adjusting prices and encouraging people to either conserve energy or switch to cleaner energy sources. So they don't understand it, they're skeptical, and they're vulnerable to misleading rhetoric because of it. I think another thing is that historically, we've thought of environmental issues as something caused by industrial sources, that factory that is polluting. And climate change is different because we're all using fossil fuels and we're all polluting all the time. And I think people want to believe this is someone else's fault and someone else needs to change. And when governments propose a policy that is urging them to adjust their own habits, their own pricing decisions, they perceive that as unfair. That, you know, it must be, someone else must be responsible for this, not me. And I think the final reason is that under regulatory approaches, it's the costs to the average person, the costs to the consumer tend to be invisible. There's this assumption that the costs are borne by the company and it doesn't affect the consumers, although that's incorrect. In the case of especially a carbon tax, or as we've seen, emissions trading schemes that get called a carbon tax, that the cost to the average person are more visible than it is under regulation. And, and they don't like that. People don't want to spend money, even if it's to fix a problem that they say is of great concern to them. And even in the case of a revenue neutral carbon tax, such as the federal government's tax and dividend scheme, the costs, the, the additional price at the, at the pump tend to be quite visible, whereas the money that's being returned through a tax deduction or a tax credit is much less visible. So people tend to have an exaggerated sense of how much the, the carbon price is going to cost them. Um, and because of that, so we've already got people skeptical, not understanding, it's very easy to politically attack a carbon pricing scheme by playing to voters' misunderstanding, their mistrust, and they're just playing human desire to have someone else besides them solve the problem. And we've seen that time and again in debates about carbon pricing in Canada, at the provincial level, the federal level, in Australia, in France, where politicians who you know, are seeking political advantage, can tell voters what they want to hear, that it's going to cost you a lot, it's not fair to you, it's going to kill jobs, it won't work. Yeah, and some of the main messages we're seeing are that this transition is, is harder on some places and some people than others, that it's unfair, that we should be taxing the big polluters, not just individual commuters. What are some ways that policymakers have successfully responded to these critiques? Well, I think one of the things is by communicating effectively and consistently how the policy works and what the implications are for individual consumers, individual voters. And certainly there's a lot of effort in trying to do that and designing a policy as the federal government has done that gives the money back. The way the federal carbon tax is designed Individuals will pay higher prices, whether it's to heat their homes, whether it's to put um, gasoline in their vehicles, or whether it's indirectly because they're purchasing goods produced with more costly fossil fuels. But 
the federal government is then taking all of the, the revenues that they've collected and giving it back through tax credits, through annual tax returns. So one of the things they're trying to do is just explain that to people. The other thing I would say is that when we do have carbon pricing regimes in place in other countries, in Ireland, they have a carbon tax and Scandinavian countries, they have a carbon tax. In the European Union, they have an emissions trading scheme for large industrial sources. One of the things that's different is that there was multi-party agreement that this issue was so important that politicians were willing not to take advantage of their partisan differences and instead work to build a better system. You know, as I said, there are a lot of easy arguments that someone can make in trying to take advantage of voters' mistrust and misunderstanding of carbon pricing schemes. But those, those arguments aren't making themselves. Politicians have to choose to opportunistically make a populist argument to try fight the policy. They want to, you know, win votes by making these arguments, often arguments that are either selective by focusing on the costs and not citing the benefits or simply misleading by saying that carbon taxes don't work when we know they do. So I think one of the reasons there's been more success in other jurisdictions is that politicians have been willing to put their own short-term political differences on hold in order to seek a way forward in addressing a, a really urgent global problem. A lot of the messaging and the opposition to carbon pricing in Canada, people are attributing that to a conservative wave of premiers who are in Alberta, in Ontario. Do you think that pointing to those leaders and saying, yes, it's their conservatism that is causing all this opposition to carbon pricing in Canada, do you think that's a a fair characterization of what's going on, or is it an oversimplification of how provinces are responding? Yes and no. No in the sense that there's nothing inherently conservative about opposing a carbon pricing scheme. In fact, I would argue the opposite. Carbon pricing takes advantage of a market-based approach, and none other than Preston Manning himself has argued that um, embracing carbon pricing is an inherently conservative approach to addressing climate change. But it is the case that the opposition is coming from conservative um, provincial leaders and the, um, the conservative leader at the federal level. And I think the issue there is not so much that they're conservative, but that they are the opposition party. And they've taken advantage of an opportunity to mount a populist attack against the federal carbon tax. That's very tempting for any political party. And interestingly, we saw a similar populist campaign against the carbon tax happen from the NDP in the case of the British Columbia carbon tax that was adopted in, in 2008. At that point, the, the NDP was the opposition party and they launched uh, the Axe the Tax campaign which offered many of the same messages we're now hearing from conservatives in response to the Trudeau government's carbon pricing scheme. That's a great transition, because one of the pieces you write for Policy Options series is about BC's experience as an early carbon tax adopter. So what are some of the lessons that other provincial governments can learn from BC? Well, I think that the good news lesson is that it works. 
British Columbia's carbon tax was in, in many ways a natural experiment because BC adopted this tax and at the same time other Canadian provinces didn't. And that's allowed economists to use you know, sophisticated statistical techniques to tease out what was the impact of the carbon tax in British Columbia. Um, and what they found, and there's now a growing body of peer-reviewed academic research, is that the BC carbon tax reduced consumption of transportation fuels, it reduced consumption of fossil fuels for home heating, it increased the number of purchases of more fuel-efficient motor vehicles, and that it did all that without significant harm to the economy. So the good news is it works. The bad news is that the political debate about BC's carbon tax was in many ways the dry run for the kinds of political debates that have followed. And we saw all the same kind of rhetoric emerging and those lines, axe the tax, it's unfair, it won't work, in many ways misleading the public were then picked up first by the federal conservatives in the 2008 federal election when the liberals under Stefan Dion were running on the idea of a national carbon tax. The same messages were that they crossed the Pacific and were replayed by the Liberal Party in Australia four years later in fighting successfully that country's carbon tax. And we're hearing it today from federal and provincial conservatives. I think there, there are some lessons in the importance of designing a carbon tax so that returning the revenues is more visible to voters. BC did it through tax cuts and uh, the federal government has done it through dividends, although I think it's unfortunate they're, they're doing it through the tax returns rather than sending checks out. There's also been a greater effort to ensure that rural taxpayers who don't have the same kind of transit options get additional money back that vulnerable communities like First Nations communities are taken care of and also that public institutions like schools and universities and um, hospitals and municipalities have a mechanism to um, get money back to help them pay the higher prices as well. You mentioned that BC, in a way, was a dry run for some of the messaging we're hearing now. Is there anything we can learn as well from how British Columbia's provincial government was able to sustain this tax, even despite opposition? Definitely. And I'm, I'm glad, <laughs> glad you asked me that. Initially, the BC carbon tax was quite unpopular. But one of the important things is that it became more popular over time. And I think it was about three years later, the ratio of opposition to support had completely flipped and support was two to one. So that made it easier to keep the BC carbon tax. And the other thing that happened is that once a government adopts a carbon tax, they get used to having those revenues. So whether they're spending the revenue on public transit or health care, or whether they've given it back through tax cuts or dividends, if they get rid of the carbon tax, they create a hole in their budget. And they also risk alienating all of the same people who got angry the first time by having to raise some other tax. So one of the things we've learned is that although they're difficult to adopt initially, carbon taxes can be quite resilient 
over time if they survived that first election. And eventually, there was a change in government and the NDP, which had opposed uh, the carbon tax when it was adopted by the Liberals in British Columbia, embraced the carbon tax. They made some adaptations in terms of what happens to the additional revenues over time, but they kept the carbon tax and are continuing to increase the price. So speaking of that question of whether the government survives that initial election post-carbon tax, Andrew Scheer recently released the Federal Conservatives Climate Plan. And there was some debate, actually, over whether there was an indirect carbon price in there. If the Conservatives are elected this October and his plan comes into effect, how do you think the provinces might respond to that? Well, first off, I I do think there is an indirect carbon tax in there, although uh, Mr. Scheer isn't calling it that. This idea that if polluters are emitting more than some unspecified amount, they'll have to pay some unspecified amount or invest that into technology. One of the challenges with the Conservatives' proposed carbon tax is that nobody can tell who's going to be affected by how much, what the price will be, or what it will accomplish. Um, So how will the provincial governments respond to that? I expect those that are led by conservative majorities, which are already on board and standing alongside Mr. Scheer and fighting the Trudeau government's carbon pricing scheme, will continue to be on board and are eager to embrace whatever a future sheer government might adopt if they get elected. I don't think we would see any change from Quebec and British Columbia, which were already going their own way and are continuing to do so and have public support for the schemes that they're implementing. The interesting question is, what about the others, the ones who only did something because there was a threat from the federal government? My guess is that they're going to wait and see. They've put in place policies that will accomplish some good environmental objectives at extremely low cost. They are able to give the money back to citizens. They might just keep them or they might you know, wait and see what happens over time if the Conservatives are elected. The next few months are going to be very important for the future of carbon pricing in Canada. In your eyes, Will we have carbon pricing across the country 10 years from now? There's kind of a a short-term question, what happens with the election and then the long-term. I think in the long-term, there will be carbon pricing in Canada and in other countries. I think the longer Canada waits to get on board with climate action, the more vulnerable we are to having our economy hit harder by the fact that other countries are going to reduce their consumption of fossil fuels and won't need to buy our exports anymore. So I think we're vulnerable if we don't get on board with action on climate change sooner. Looking to October and what happens in the election, if the Liberals win a majority or even a minority, I think we'll see the status quo prevail. There are still the court challenges to come. I think uh, the Ontario court is going to announce its decision today. But in any case, that one's going to go to the Supreme Court. And I think that the Supreme Court will uphold the federal plan. It will be interesting if the status quo prevails, whether over time, 
some of the other provinces will move towards a tax and dividend scheme like the federal government is is imposing in five provinces. You know, will there be pressure, for instance, on British Columbia to give the money back rather than spending it? If the Conservatives win a majority, it's gone. Mr. Scheer has put forward his plan, however unclear that might be. But the one thing that is clear is that he would get rid of the carbon tax. The interesting question is what happens if the result of the election is a Conservative minority government? I think they would still withdraw the federal carbon tax. The big question in my mind is whether the other parties that would hold a majority in the House of Commons would get their act together and try to pass legislation that demands more over the objections of the sheer government. To do that, they would have to risk an election. So they'd have to be willing to fight, go to the voters over that. And they'd also have to be willing to collaborate with each other. All of those are pretty big ifs in Canadian politics. So one last question. Let's say I'm a voter. I'm going to the polls. I'm in a A province like Saskatchewan or Alberta, where my leadership is dead set against carbon pricing, what is your message for me to maybe change my mind or or open my mind a little bit? I, I think that voters should be asking all the candidates in their riding some tough questions. A large fraction of Canadians say that this is an important issue for them in the election. They should be getting more information. I think the first question is, What reductions in Canada's greenhouse gas emissions will your party's plan achieve? Because the Liberals are in government, they've put that on the table and they've specified the different measures, the carbon pricing scheme only being one of them, that they would adopt and what the emissions reductions are anticipated from each of those. We haven't seen that from the Conservatives, for instance. So what are the reductions? Will your scheme meet Canada's Paris Agreement target? And then... The last question I think voters should ask is, what's it going to cost me directly in the form of higher prices, indirectly in the form of prices being passed on to me? Because we also haven't seen a lot of transparency on that from opposition parties. One of the challenges, as this is where we started our conversation, traditional regulatory approaches or subsidies that essentially buy voters support with their own money tend to cost more than carbon pricing schemes, but those costs tend to be less visible. One of the risks to voters is that they could buy a bill of goods in embracing something that either doesn't accomplish the objectives that Canadians say they support, compliance with the Paris Agreement International Treaty, or that will actually cost them more than the current plan, but they just don't see it coming. Thank you so much. It was great to have you on the podcast. My pleasure. That was Catherine Harrison from the University of British Columbia. If you'd like to read her pieces from Policy Options' new feature series on provincial responses to carbon pricing, you can find them linked in the episode description below. Or you can check out the whole series, available at policyoptions.irpp.org. If you'd like to get in touch, shoot us an email at policyoptions@irpp.org, or you can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook under the handle at IRPP. My name is Julie Bijel. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Policy Options Podcast.